Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 147. Today we're sharing a conversation I had a couple months ago with Sophia Borges and R. Scott Mitchell, the leaders of a design-build studio at USC that addressed one of the most pressing issues in Los Angeles today, homelessness. The Mad Workshop Homeless Studio set out with the goal of addressing the citywide crisis by developing a real-world architectural response. Our conversation ranges from discussing both Sophia and Scott's complementary backgrounds, considerations for approaching this difficult and delicate problem in an academic environment, to their thoughts on how architects can actually make a positive difference to this growing crisis. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming into the studio in Pasadena today, Sophia. And do you, do you prefer R. Scott Mitchell? I've always known you as Scott Mitchell. Well, it is Scott Mitchell. It's, yeah. I make the distinction just because there's another Scott Mitchell in LA that does similar things. I remember. And he yeah. went to SciArc. He did go the, to SciArc. It's yes. been very confusing for suppliers and clients. And uh, Wasn't he Tom Ford's boyfriend for a while? We're not going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or that was you, maybe. Maybe later. Yeah, okay. yeah. I don't want to talk about Tom either. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I respect his work with Gucci, but uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, Scott's done very well. It just it is very funny that I just made the distinction of Scott Mitchell because literally at Sire we had a problem because he was M. Scott Mitchell, I was R. Scott Mitchell. We're both from Texas. And it was just became a nightmare. So our Scott was always a distinction, but he's Scott Mitchell studio. And then my company is called Higante AG, which is just cause I'm a giant. And, uh, so you never just, you never went with like seven foot Scott Mitchell, five foot Scott Mitchell. Oh, uh, there was big Scott and little Scott. And that's oh, okay. how I, that was the yeah, distinction yeah. in school. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I'm sure you still field calls for him every once in a while or probably vice versa. I've gotten calls, crazy calls from his clients. Yeah. Like when I was at Frank Gary's office, I got a call one day, like, asked me to do a Hampton style farmhouse. And I was like, I don't do that. I'm actually at an architecture office. How'd you get my number? And they're like, well, you're Scott Mitchell. I'm like, but I didn't build any Hampton style farmhouses. And I finally realized it was for him. And it was actually Sam Raimi's wife. Oh, wow. Like it was the weekend <laughs> after Spider-Man two opened. And I guess she got a new house after a good opening that weekend. So she called Scott Mitchell to uh, get a Hampton style farmhouse. Well, if you ever want to move into that luxury vacation house, it's, uh, I, I told her it wasn't my thing, but uh, I referred her to the correct Scott and, uh, and, um, and I've been in touch with him. He's actually, he's a great guy. We just, yeah. uh, it does cross up with suppliers and things. You just need to get a referral fee at least. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But uh, I get calls all the time from everyone. when I saw you in the LA times, you're Jennifer Anderson's favorite architect. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're being honest. Not yeah. yet. Yes, not yet. Yes. So maybe you guys can just start out with, because I know Mad Workshop operates in a fairly non-traditional model when you look at, uh, I mean, it, it seems to really bridge the world between practice and academia, looking at socially progressive issues, how to deal with complicated social issues. Can you talk a little bit about, about what the foundation is and, and how it got started? So the foundation started... I'll, I'll let Sophia take on over that. I always look at it as a educational or design nonprofit. A design and education foundation. Get this by transposed. <laughs> um, well, it it came out of something where David and Mary Martin, who were um, you know they're L.A. to the bone, U.S.C. to the bone. They've been you know the, the you know really old school L.A. and but in at U.S.C. Uh, David was always doing from I think they started in 2005 maybe a furniture design class that David was teaching as he was at A.C. Martin and. Um, he was really compelled by having students build things. And he really, it wasn't that he was against the critical side of architecture. It was more like he wanted to have students to have a hands-on. So, he, you know, he and his partners, like, you know, built a metal shop for the school. 
and the class just became increasingly popular. And uh, I mean, David's on the board of USC and he was heavily involved in it. But you know, after a while, he got too busy to really teach the class. And I was there. I'd been teaching at Art Center and working at Art Center. And um, I came in and they were like, they handed, it was kind of a transition. They handed the class over to me. And, you know, I was doing some studio, but mainly digital fabrication and fabrication courses. And, but then they came in and they wanted to do a, a sponsored studio. And, and this led into some other projects, but they did, they sponsored this thing called the Bridge Studio where they gave us a hypothetical site and, um, uh, sorry, a real, a real site, a hypothetical project. And um, they were so happy with the work that after that, they were like, I think that was the real impetus for the Mad Workshop Foundation, that they saw that they threw this project out and we really created an office within the studio, which is what we did with the Homeless Project as well. And I think after that, like, you know, they, you could tell they were kind of like really formulating something on that. And I came back later and they're like, we're going to start a foundation because we really like what came out of this that is possible buildable work. And actually the work out of that Bridge Studios, we're actually building it now. It's been five years and now that's another conversation, but they really got excited about it and just, you know, created this nonprofit. And um, I'm actually on the board with several of their amazing people they put together, but it, they are sponsoring studios at, you want to take that? Yeah, we have uh, active projects at UCLA. We just wrapped up one there. We wrapped up one at Pratt. We have one coming up in the fall at SciArc. We really have had really exciting partnerships with a lot of schools all across Southern California, but also nationally and now internationally as well. So we're pretty excited to continue to expand and reach programs and students that haven't had this kind of access before. How are the schools selected to partner with? I think it really depends on the project. One of the things that I think the foundation has really been amazing at doing is bridging a gap or filling a gap that has existed in design education. So, you know, we both went to architecture school and design school. And one of the things that I took away from my experience was how little I was prepared for the real world and how little or few opportunities you get to actually make something, interface with clients, all of that. So when you actually get out into the real world, it's a pretty rude awakening for most people. So where did you go to school? I actually went to UCLA, okay. School of Architecture. Uh -huh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it's, it's been kind of funny going full circle back to, we just finished a project at UCLA. So it was fun to go back to my alma mater and see what was happening there. But I think in general, one of the things that's been really powerful about the work that we do with these students, these young designers and students is to provide them with a real world client, a real world experience and an opportunity to not be speculative, to actually tackle a real world design and social problem and hopefully bring it to life. So our goal is to kind of create, give these students a, a real launching board for their future careers as designers and set them apart and give them access that they wouldn't necessarily have access to. And so I think in terms of who we end up partnering with, typically we come in with an idea. So we already have a question in mind or something that we've been thinking about or a partner that has an issue that needs to be addressed. And then we go to the school and say, okay, well, we have this amazing entity that wants to work with us. In this case, in the fall, for instance, we'll be, we'll be working with the Huntington Gardens. So we have an, this amazing entity. They need X. We also have a really wonderful network of supporters and design talent that wants or that that ends up being at the forefront of these classes. So we say, okay, so-and-so is interested in working with us. This entity is interested. We have this problem to tackle. Are you interested? And then we build a collaboration from, from that kind of structure. So before we jump into more of, about how the how Mad uh, Workshop functions, I'd like to learn a little bit 
more about both of you and how you ended up here sure. with, with uh, Mad Workshop. So what, what's uh, so you went to UCLA, always wanted to be an architect? No, always was never. Never came. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I actually wanted to be an architect until just a few years before I went to architecture school. I always had a lot of interests. I still have a lot of interests. So I've always been kind of walking at the the threshold of architecture. So I went to art school. I was at CalArts. I was a photography major. I did all sorts of other design and writing. And and then, you know, the photography, I ended up realizing kind of mainly taking pictures of buildings in the built world. And then, then I started in urban design. I actually got my BA in urban design in New York at the new school. And so I, I was always kind of dancing around it. And then I ended up working at the Museum of Modern Art right after my first job out of college, and it was right after they had renovated it. And it was such a frustrating space to be in, which might not be that politically correct to be saying, but I was. it was right after it opened. So they probably have figured out some of the kinks that I was experiencing, but I was just frustrated all the time being in this space that wasn't working. And so it kind of felt like between my background in urban design and, and art and then being always frustrated and drawn to buildings that, that maybe that would be the next transition. So I actually was going to do a joint degree with urban planning and architecture at UCLA. And I dropped out of urban planning and just finished in architecture. So, and so did you practice? Yeah, no, yeah. I had a, I had a, I have had two different studios, one um, actually in Germany. So that's kind of where my work started. And then I also had a practice here in LA. Why in Germany? Well, that's that's maybe a longer story. But <laughs> when I graduated, it was kind of at the tail end of the economic collapse. And of course, our industry was one of the very last to recover. So it was pretty dire straits. And so I thought, you know, no one's getting any work. I don't really know what I'm going to do. Maybe this was a horrible idea. Lots of debt, you know, regret maybe. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I'm just going to take a second. And I, cause I've always been doing writing as well. That's how I paid for my studies. And I decided to go to Japan for a second. I was going to work on a writing project and just, you know, think and see what would come next. And so five days into that time, the earthquake of 2001 happened. So you can't my, escape the disasters. Right. So my plans kind of, so I ended up in Germany as a refugee, which wasn't my plan. All my stuff was in Japan. I had this whole way that my life was supposed to go. And I literally got thrown out of that plan. So then I was in Germany and that was one of the most humbling times of my life because I couldn't find work. And I applied to anything, everything all over the world. And I would have gone essentially anywhere. I was just like, if I can get a job, I'll go there. It's fine. And for whatever reason, the only bites I got were in Germany. And so that's when I became the architecture editor at Gestalten, which was a really fortunate break at the time. And that was also where the, my first clients came from because, you know, in, in a place like Germany, a, a UCLA student is as a novelty. They're like, ooh, LA, fancy. So it ended up being like a really lucky first break that I got, but it certainly wasn't planned or a part of what I thought my trajectory would end up being. Could you speak German? No, I'm Vissian. Okay. <laughs> Not enough. So then when did you get, come back to So I came back in 2000 and when did I come back? I came back five years ago. Okay. <laughs> 2014. 2014. 2014. I came back five years ago. It was five years ago in June. And I had uh, an offer at the USC School of Architecture. And uh, so I've been back ever since. 
And so did your position at USC kind of bring you to uh, working with Mad Workshop? It actually completely did. So, you know, I'm from LA and while I was away, I feel like the city really changed. So I was gone from 2011 to 2014 or 2010 to 2014. Um, Now I remember dates again. And I think in that time, you know, the city really changed and it became so much more unaffordable and the level of disparity and poverty that you're seeing now is is just that all ha- I feel like that really took off while I was away. So when I came back, I was it was so visceral and so startling to me how much suffering there was on every street corner and how little was being done. And at the same time, the actually the week that I moved back from Germany, my my whole life just took a different trajectory. You know, I thought I was going to be doing I mean, I guess it's happened a couple of times to me, but I moved back because I also was homesick. I wanted to be closer to family. And that same week, my brother died and he, you know, was struggling with homelessness and mental health issues for most of his life. And so when I came back and I just saw all the disparity and all the people outside suffering, I just, I just took it so personally. And I had another practice that I had started here and I was working on these high-end residential projects and losing sleep over wallpaper orders and all of this stuff that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. That just felt like I shouldn't be putting my energy towards this. It just doesn't feel right anymore. It's just, it doesn't feel right. And so I, uh, so I was teaching at USC and I had the opportunity to, to do a, a faculty show. So every semester, quarter, quarter, I'm forgetting. One semester. Before. Semester, right. <laughs> it's been a couple of years now. Um, but every, every semester they, they pick uh, faculty for these rotating shows. So they picked me. And typically these faculty shows are kind of some rehashing of your portfolio or what you've done. And I really didn't want to use that space as an opportunity to do that. I just thought, well, I want to do something that's actually on my mind. And so I did this super personal piece where I was photographing people experiencing homelessness and then housing them in my imagination. So I did this series and put the, put it up along with my story about why I take this so personally and it was really scary. And my my mom didn't want me to do it. And it just wasn't a safe thing to do. But I did. And I actually, it was well received. And that was nice. So at the same time, by chance, I did this. And then David and Mary Martin came to the USC School of Architecture and said that they wanted to do a studio about emergency stabilization housing for our homelessness crisis. And when there was an opportunity, so obviously they've been working with Scott for quite a while. Nobody knew about me. But when there was the opportunity that, okay, well, we need to pair him with somebody because I just done that show and put my heart on my sleeve. They were like, oh, I have an idea. So that's how we got to know each other. And it was just a complete fluke that this all took me to this place. And then while we were doing this studio, which was pretty crazy and ambitious and amazing, they were just kind of also watching me and they're like, you're pretty crazy. Like, why don't you come be crazy for us? And that just seemed like the right thing to do next. Well, I'm so sorry about your brother. Oh, thank I mean, you. that's tragic. Was he homeless for uh, for a while? Yeah, he had been. I mean, he had been in, cycling in and out of the criminal justice system and on the streets for most of his adult life. So it had it had been a while of this kind of cycle. And yeah, it's. So you've seen this the problem with homelessness oh, up sure. close and personal. And yeah, definitely, very, Scott. You, um, I mean, for as long as I've known you, since uh, we were at school together in the 90s, you were always the guy making 
crazy stuff in the in the metal shop in the wood shop um i've had that reputation and um now i came um i mean as far as background goes like i mean we i think i did i can't remember what i mean it may have been like 99 or 2000 when i got here and it really is like it's stunning to think like how long i've been in la Mm-hmm. At this point, I don't even want to admit it. Uh, <laughs> but I remember when you came, yeah. you you had come from a very interesting background of uh, I, making big uh, robotic. Big <laughs> yeah. um, Can you talk well, a little bit about I, that? Yeah, I had um, I came out of um, um, I came out of Texas. I, well, I I came to Cyark from University of Texas, where um, such a great school, but it just like I was kind of bored because it's a very old campus and you can't really do anything. I had a machine shop and it was just like the work I was doing wasn't really well received. So they said, you need to go to SciArc and um, showed up. But I didn't, I did my undergrad at um, Brown and RISD. I graduated from Brown and, um, and I took time off. I started grad school and didn't like it. And I came back a few times and uh, finally decided to do it. I have a very weird relationship with architecture, period. And um, I really just don't know what to make it at half the time. That's probably why we get along. Maybe. And <laughs> I think it might be. But uh, I mean, and, and Paul's right. Like Paul's, you know, memory of me, we haven't seen each other in years. But um, it's, you know, it is on. That was my my reputation, my MO. But, um, you know, getting there, I, you know, kind of sucked it up. I spent some time, you know, during, during the Cyarch move to downtown, I took off for a while and lived in Holland. Like I had a machine shop downtown. It got Everything got stolen one week while I was away for Christmas. And so I was like, I'm moving to Holland for a while and worked there. And I came back and, and, and graduated. I think it was the first class to graduate in the new building at Cyarch. And we had the inaugural class there. And then um, I worked for Barbara Bester for a little while. She was very patient with me. I was a very weird employee. And then um, <laughs> she's wonderful. And then I went to I went to Frank Gehry's office for a while. And then I was at Morphosis. And uh, Frank's was great. I've, I still have done work for them in the years since I left. Uh, I'm, I, I like them a lot. Um, and then after Morphosis, I was like, I don't want to do architecture anymore. And um, that was about a year. And um, I started doing some work at Art Center because I really wanted to dive into digital fabrication. I was pretty adept at all their forms of fabrication, but it was really more like I kind of stayed away from the digital side of it. And um, you know, as much as we had done the work, at my work was weird at Frank Gehry's office because I was just doing Katia and Rhino every day and I wasn't building anything. And Morphosis was just a complete flip the other way where I was just in the shop, just doing R&D every day. So there wasn't a good balance. But um, And then I wound up at Art Center because I really just wanted to learn this stuff. And so I was doing a bunch of tutoring at Art Center and um, you know different classes and uh, different solid modeling things. And uh, really kind of diving into it. And then... I wound up at USC. I started at the same time I started at USC. I was teaching a little bit at SciArc. I started teaching at uh, USC and um, I started getting my first jobs. And the first thing I ever really did was uh, 826 LA through, actually through Glasgow, uh, Hmm. a a mutual friend of ours. We met up with Dave Eggers and ended up doing the 826 LA office, which has been 10, 11 years now since that started. And so from that, I started getting like, you know, high-end residential clients, like clients I can't really talk about because of NDAs and things like that. And it got to be frustrating because, you know, residential architecture is more about dealing with people's feelings than anything. And so it was just something where I started getting more and more into teaching, which I never thought I would really do. And um, that's when I met David Martin and I kind of took over those classes and I was doing, you know, doing more and more fabrication. We were getting more equipment. When I started, we had nothing. We had literally, I'd come from art center where we had everything and got to USC where we had nothing. But um, actually just to jump back, something, um, you ask about is that I, the time I took off from architecture school, I did go build giant robots. That's what I was waiting for you to talk about. about. I I completely (laughs) skipped over that. And um, I was like, maybe he doesn't want to talk about that for legal (laughs) reasons. Well, I've spent so long separating my worlds 
that um, like there's architecture and there's that, which I've, I've been refused from jobs from showing that. Like I went to one job interview once and I showed some of that stuff and they were like, this is not what we do here. <laughs> and it was something called survival research labs, which was started, I guess the guy started in the seventies. I did it in the mid nineties. And, um, it was really like a lot of disaffected, really smart people. I'm one of the dumb ones. Like it was all like, we were working with high energy physicists and neural networking specialists. And like, and then we were in the shop, like finding old military hardware and modifying that into large robots that would fight each other. And then we rebuild them and do it again. And, I learned a tremendous amount there. It was just like all these people who are really bored at their jobs. And it was like, I want to use what I know just to have fun. And so, I mean, there were people that had, you know, worked at Stanford Linear Accelerator. There were just some really, and then some robotic, you know, PhDs out of Berkeley. So it was really phenomenal stuff, but it was, a, you know, there was a lot of infighting and it's just like a very weird community. And so it was, and then after that, I, I was also working in an engineering firm that did like large stages. So for like, for a year, I was on tour with you two. And I think my first job out of college, I was doing like, I was the head welder on the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And so, yeah, the bomb went off on our job site, which was like really awkward. Wow, awkward. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to it's describe like it. very awkward. And yeah. uh, it was just I mean, very, you know, strange things like that. But I wound up back in school, like I'd finished that, you know, the U2 stuff up and I was just, uh, went back to Austin and um, I really just did not jive with school. And I realized like Syrac has a giant parking lot and they like to build things. I'm going to go there. And, um, and that's really when I'm, I met Paul, like the first, I mean, the first few days I was there. Uh, Were you ever at Beethoven? For a minute. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah that's semester, what I thought. Cause I was never downtown. Yeah. My, my first semester was at Beethoven uh -huh. and then it just, and then they moved to downtown. And when they went to that big tent, yeah. I went to Holland. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Cause I remember pulling into that parking lot. You were always yeah. there in the metal shop. Yeah. In, in Holland, I went to the Berlaga for a minute and, uh, which is a great school. I really love Rotterdam so much. And then I went to work for a guy named Van Lieselt, which is a very crazy designer, kind of parasitic polyester pods, like a lot of work with, uh, Ome and things like that. And, um, but I really liked the feel of Rotterdam. It's just like, it's like the Chicago of Holland. It's just like <laughs> very industrial, just such an amazing place to be. Like those people have been fighting the, the North sea for 600 years They're, They got some, they got some struggle behind them. And, um, they should start calling themselves out the Chicago of, I don't know if they'd really like that no. much. But they're really, uh, they're, they're really, they're going to, I mean, they were the industrial city. Like Amsterdam yeah. is the, you know, we are diamonds and banks and Rotterdam's yeah. like, we build stuff and we have a big port. Yeah. And, um, so, but I really, I still have a really soft spot for Rotterdam. That place is great. But yeah, going back to, um, school, we've really been kind of fighting through like, you know, getting digital technology into the school. Like literally when I started at, um, at USC, we had, there was nothing there. Like absolutely nothing. And we started getting some, you know, some funding to buy certain things, like just getting, you know, basic CNC stuff and, you know, just getting like, it was like six or seven years ago where we, we didn't even have laser cutters. We were just getting them at the time. And so there was a rough period of catch up and, you know, now, but it, it's, it's still a kind of a thing where we're constantly battling to just kind of stay, you know, ahead of the curve or just at least on it um, as far as that. But really that our... The first four years of architecture school, I mean, I kind of roll into some other stuff. The first four years of architecture school, kind of this wrote prescribed, the first three years, this wrote prescribed program 
which I can't blame them. That's what it is. But then like the fourth year is when the students can kind of break loose and go into like what Cyric was a vertical studio. Then you're getting into these topic studios where it's a little more freedom and on these things. And so that's when I kind of get the students. I really wasn't successful at teaching first year. It just didn't go well. And it's when these things were like, oh, you know this reference. Oh, no, you don't know that. You don't know this. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm not that good at this. But I'm better as a ghost in the machine. Like I, I'm in the shop. I'm as someone once said, I'm too dirty to be an architect. He's, he's a great I'm, teacher. I'm absolutely he's being fine. I'm absolutely fine with that. I, I but uh, definitely believe her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he's amazing. Um, but no, I really love teaching, and um, I didn't. I have a hard time admitting that a lot of the time. But it was just like you know, I don't like academia. Is weird. It's like you know, the the battles are so fierce because the stakes are so small. What do you each love most about teaching? I like odd things because I have like two students that are computational designers at Nike. Like in the last six months, I have um, a student that you know is now working on the Lucas Museum. Um, just you know, fantastic kids. I have like five so with Matt or with one. Uh, no, with with this bizarre um, BIM uh, construction firm. Okay, so one like, of the yeah, and they're and they're really companies. like going hard at digital fabrication and computational design mm. for the design output, and it's really a way people are going. So, and my classes are like you know the first time when they're actually kind of using either parametric or computational design to really kind of do anything or make extract that and make you know the digital real. But then, you know, strange thing about the architectural fabric, the architectural education these days, and I tell the students this all the time, is that your education is so much more valuable even outside architecture. Because like the fact that Nike is looking for a way to use all the data they've collected for the last, God, I mean, 40 years. I'm not sure how old Nike is. But, you know, the, I got a call from Tesla one day and it was a cold call just like, oh, we have one of your former students and we have been struggling for people to do class A modeling. And I'm like, why are you calling me? And they're like, well... We had tried out, you know, industrial designers, product designers, you know, which are largely the same thing, but mechanical engineers, like we tried all these things and nobody really got what we were doing. But we, on a whim, we hired this architecture student and he said that, you know, he'd taken your classes and that's how he understood, you know, certain things about mold making and form. And we want more of the students. So I was just kind of floored by that. Wow. And, you know, and then like somebody like Alex McDowell, you know, the uh, production designer for Minority Report, like... I'm really interested in what he's doing because this whole world building thing and like he's over in USC doing his own thing over in the cinema school, but he's also interested in, in you know, um, in the architectural education. I feel this kind of spatial programming that you, you get, uh, spatial information that you can kind of process without really thinking about it after that education, like is very valuable to their fields. But I think, you know, and also students just being able to understand like that we can make something that it's not like I'm going to design this and somebody else will handle that. It's one of my least favorite things to hear from me. Even my engineer the other day was like, well, that's the contractor's problem. I'm like, no, it's my problem because mm -hmm. I'm designing and building this thing. So you're not helping. And so for them to have more control over what they're doing, which kind of leads into these whole like sponsored studios that are really having these students dive into it. And even if they don't become experts at it, they have a better understanding of these things and they can be more reasonable. They don't have to compromise for their engineers. They don't have to compromise for more. You know, they have a better understanding of materials, structures, everything that they can just be more competitive in their world and, and more forceful because architects lost their power like 50 years ago and they've not <laughs> regained it. So uh, I may be rambling on at this point. But uh, What do you get the most out of teaching? I like watching the students come to life and start to really care. So I think that in general, what I'm seeing with this generation of students is that there's a lot of complacency and 
I don't want to say laziness, but there's a there's an element of that, or even just the idea that if that research or effort kind of stops at Pinterest. Um, one of the big things that we did in the studio we just finished with uh, Otis College of Design and Jason Wu was we partnered with LACMA and they opened their archives to these students. So they got to see work that you would never see otherwise. And it was totally just like watching their brains expand to realize, oh, this stuff isn't on Instagram. You know, this is <laughs> like, so to actually realize that, you know, it's not enough to just do what everybody else is doing. You can do that, but that's not going to set you apart as a designer, as a thinker, as a person, as a contributor to society. So one of my favorite things about teaching is seeing which students wake up and start to really care, like really care and learn that they have so much agency to make a difference with their own two hands, with their ideas, with how they operate and move through the world as a designer. That I really love that. Those are two great reasons to teach. I'm so now I'm curious about. Uh, so, what was your first studio together? I mean, it seems like you two are so different, yet well aligned. I imagine you you you've taught together throughout this this process through Mad Workshop. Is that I just correct? I mean just that studio. So so uh, can you talk about that studio? Well, I just wanted to say that that was the studio that we taught together. But in yeah. general, because he is on our board, mm. we're always working together right, on something, yeah. whether it's because we also have an active fellowship program mm -hmm. where we take, we, we offer uh, young talents a fellowship for mm -hmm. a year where they get to work on a project with us and take it out of their portfolio and into reality. And okay. so Scott's a really instrumental part in that process. So you can never escape. We'll, we'll always, <laughs> we'll always be working <laughs> no, on something. I was up there for three hours yesterday. That's four right. hours actually. But um, <laughs> the, um, no, it is, it's something pretty marvelous that, um, you know, th they came in with this and like in, and David and Mary were well attuned to what's going on. And, I mean, just to go back, I mean, the, ins the inspiration story, I mean, that was relayed to me from Mary Martin was that she was driving under the 405 over by the VA building in, in West L.A. And she was just like, uh, just kind of floored because a lot of us can, you know, I just admitted I've been in L.A. for a very long time. And, you know, and, and you, you were gone and came back. So you had this critical distance and you came back mm -hmm. to L.A. Like I've been here during the time that this has all changed. And the idea that she drove through and was suddenly just like struck by the size of this encampment, homeless encampment, and also just kind of the ingenuity involved in like maintaining that small society and that in that kind of village that was building up by the VA. And so she came and and, and David came and, you know, they Med Workshop was just in its kind of vestigial. It was actually, I think it, it had its 501c3 at that point, but um, they came and said, we want to do this. And, you know, Sophia talked on this a second ago, but like, you know, they came to me and said, what can students do? And I'm like, we can do a lot. But I mean, we have 15 weeks and it really depends on how we approach this. And I can't do it by myself. Like I can't do these, you know, something that's this involved, like this is really going to be intense. And, and that's when like, I, I knew Sophia's work, but it was, it, but I, I'd never met her. You'd been there for a couple of years before I even met you. I actually knew Scott's work and mm -hmm. I, I realized later that I had gone to his lecture. Oh, right. What was that like? I don't know. That was, uh, that was it was like, a long time ago, but about his 826LA project. And then when I when we yeah. partnered, I was like, oh my God, I know you. How fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think my wife, and that was, I think that was our second date. She came to see me do that presentation. Right. And, so, and she stayed with you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting <laughs> to see. Yeah, she has. <laughs> she's very patient. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, um, yeah, she's very, 
very understanding about most of these things. Um, so when you say you needed someone, you needed, you needed, I needed some help. Somebody, what was that? I, I'm not, I mean, I, I'm not a homeless advocate. I'm, I'm, I am in a way, but like the thing is the same thing as like LA. I'm in LA. I'm not of LA. So I do have a distance. I can see all this, but I'm more about, I do more problem solving. I'm not a hand holder mm-hmm. at all. And you can ask any student. I don't hold hands. And it's just a matter of like, I'm, I will help you as much as I can, but it's just at a certain point you need to do the work. And so it's something like we, there needed to be a softer face to this that actually had, so to say, skin in the game that actually had a vested interest in this. Yeah. I just solve problems and, and, or try to, and it's a matter of like, that was what we needed because we needed a face of this. I have a face for podcasts, not for like, <laughs> not, not for, not for going out and meeting people and, and glad handing and just trying to make this happen. I'm compelling once I get in the room, I can be, but it's more that somebody needs to make that initial contact and it ain't me. And so it was set up, the framework was there, but we needed a face of this who really understood these problems. Like I understand them now, but it was something like somebody had to be the activation energy in this. And it, and I, I was there for the back end, but somebody had to, had to, had to be the webpage on this thing. Somebody had to be the, you know, the, the, the face of it. And so it came, I mean, Sophie and I met, we agreed what was going to happen. And it just became this thing that we, it was always supposed to be some sort of emergency stabilization. It was always supposed to be, and, and then from our first conversations, like it had to be, um, it had to be something that would get people off the streets immediately. Because, and we can go on about this. I mean, it's a larger problem about all these propositions, but we had this idea that, you know, we would do these kind of small, I don't want to call them pods. I hate the word pod, uh, unless it's like a skate pod, but um, it's more just like, I think cabin was a term we threw out. Just something nicer about like, we need to get you off the street. You need to be safe. And, you know, how large are these things? You know, are they mobile? Is it, it's something that we need to do it fast. It has to be incredibly quick. So that was, that was your perspective on it. Like your pragmatic, like we, yes. we need to get these people safe yeah. in, in, under some kind of shelter. Mm-hmm. Was, did you share that same initial perspective or what, what where were you coming from? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I think one of the things that we've, we've continued to say about this project and this collaboration and the outcome of Homes for Hope is that we all agree that permanent supportive housing is the solution for ending homelessness. That is what works. But the issue is, is that each of those projects takes three to five years through entitlements for construction, and that's not addressing the people out on the streets suffering and dying right now. And so we were basically saying, well, again, kind of like what the foundation does, can we bridge the gap? Can we do something right now that stabilizes people, gets them safe, is not their forever home, but gets them into a place where they can stabilize and then move into transitional housing when it is ready. So that sounds to me like something that that could be thought of as an easy solution. <laughs> but when you really think about it and look, uh, you know, investigate it, it's incredibly incredibly complicated because of laws and cultural differences and understanding, you know, issues of mental health and drug addiction and, you know, what and uh, different priorities. So so can you talk about some of the processes that you use to investigate uh, solutions to this? The boot camp was amazing. Like the the first two weeks of the studio were just an absolute boot camp in homelessness. It wasn't, it was brutally intense. Like we're like, kids, we're going downtown and we're going to go to every agency that will talk to us. And and it was very strange that we with this project and with, I, I think, just the issue at hand, like we didn't go in at the bottom and go like, hey, can we talk to somebody? At the, we went to the top. 
like everybody was just like, okay, you're going to talk to my boss and it's going to filter down from there. Like what type of agencies? I mean, we were at LA, LADBS, LA Department of Building and Safety. We were at the planning department. We were working with Office of Economic Development, the mayor's office. Like these people just woke up and were like, okay. At first they were kind of like, there was some distance. They were like, you know, we realized this is not kind of a crazy project because they get- I think they got excited because yeah. the whole- Again, with this with this topic and with anything that the foundation tries to do is if we're picking one of these really critical social problems of our time, there's no time to be speculative. Like I, to me, I felt like if we ended this class without having made anything, it would be a failure. Mm-hmm. We would have failed. I would have failed. And so what, what we wanted to do was to really bring in the city and these different partners you know, including Scared Door Housing Trust, Downtown Women's Center, all the different local agencies that Hope I mean, of the Valley, Hope of the Valley, of course, yeah. um, Ken yes. Craft was an amazing partner for us as well. Mm-hmm. And really have them all take a level of authorship over this process so that when it, we moved it forward, it wasn't this just random project that was sliding across their desk. They came mm-hmm. to the classes. They taught some of them. They had skin in the game. And that was really what I wanted wanted to kind of facilitate was people to actually care. And if you're participating, then you're in it. And so I think through this process, because we, you know, we did a boot camp and then we built these more temporary structures that eventually led to the Homes for Hope solution. By towards, you know, we did we just wanted to try everything, knowing that some of it was more or less, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of it would be approved and some of it would be instantly, you know, bulldozed. And we knew. So we were like, okay, well, we know what you don't, you don't like. We don't, you won't approve. We know what isn't a code. So what is possible? Why don't you come and tell us? Can we have a conversation? And it was really cool to see how open they were to doing that. So it was kind of like, okay, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that. Oh, but we can do this. Oh, interesting. And then he brought us that code. So we learned about Byright and mm-hmm. how many units we could put together. And mm-hmm. and then suddenly we were onto something. Yeah. Because I mean, I've spent a, a fair amount of my adult life at this point at the LADBS counter on the fourth floor. It's just, you know, it's a constant war. And I have never had the LADBS be nicer. Like oh I've gosh, gone toe so to nice. toe with them over, you know, code issues before and 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 just permitting. But like this was something where, like we were dealing with bosses and we just went in knowing that. You know, knowing how to go through it, but also just methodically finding things. And then, you know, our first meeting with uh, Ken Kraft at the Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission, like, he didn't know what to think of us either. We went in and kind of pitched this idea of what we were going to do. And he's like, well, there's something called 30 and under buy right. And 30 under buy right was really kind of our ticket at that point. And the city may change this, may relax at a certain point. But if it's 30 units and under. 30 beds. 30 beds and under. And uh, 30 beds and under, you do not have to have a conditional use permit. And a conditional use permit is a huge thing. Like it, that can take two years to get. And you can skip the public hearings process, which is also a big deal. It's also where the neighbors would come in and complain. So you can go into any place where the zoning accommodates that. And it really becomes more like a hotel or dormitory. And we could go and put these 30 person units, any, we later find out like any lot, 5,000 square foot and under our program would fit. And up. I'm sorry. Yeah. 5,000 square feet and up. Not smaller, <laughs> but the, the um, stop that reverse. That's still not very uh, big, though. It, it, it's tiny, mm-hmm. and we were able to fit those in there. And those things, I mean, I mentioned Holland earlier, but one of the things that came out of it that I remembered was something called anti-squat. And so when people were um, trying to fight people cracking houses, and the problem we had talking to Ken was that he said, well, the neighbors will come out. Everyone gets very upset. Anytime we try to rent property, 
if you say I'm building a homeless shelter, people's eyes glaze over. They will not rent you a building. They will not do anything. And so, you know, that's when we pitched out, like, what if it's completely temporary? Like, what if it can be, you know, put up in a couple of weeks and taken down in, in a couple of weeks? And so in Holland, they have this thing where to keep people from squatting buildings, where if a building's uh, you can't speculate on property. If a building sits empty for a year, people can legally break in th- that 365th night and armor the house, and you have to legally bargain with them to get it out. So to fight that, all these building owners, if they don't know what to do with these large properties, they will rent them out with contracts to artists and students like, this is your bedroom, this old office, and they know at the end of this point, you have to leave. So it's this thing of like, you're letting people occupy it, but at a certain point, there's a legal contract they have to go. Mm-hmm. And so in something like this, we could go in and say to a landowner, it'll go in, it'll come out, it's all completely modular. We can be off the grid, we can be on the grid, you know, the longer we can be there, we can tie into city services or not. And there's really this thing like that might work. And then it suddenly turns out the city owns a lot of property. The city owns a lot of property just from, you know, um, just from people not paying their taxes and getting everything's repossessed. Like it's out there. And, you know, that seemed very, very promising. And um, do you want to talk about Hope of the Valley, like, you know, what their kind of purview is as far as like, you know, they just do the valley. And, right. and so it's something where like we had to team up uh, the Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission, which like, we, we've talked about briefly, but they they only do homelessness in the valley. And like over the last, we'll say f- three or four years now, homelessness in the valley has gone up like 30, 30 we always threw the number 36 percent was the number he gave us. So people are leaving the city because as Skid Row is constricted, people are going out. And they're a service provider that just does the valley and and they don't cross, you know, over the hills. So which has been super impacted. I think, you know, this project really took on a life of its own in a lot of ways. So we started initially working with Ken Craft and Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission mm-hmm. specifically for this idea. You know, could we create a community of uh for, of Homes for, for Hope for senior women? Because that was a market that he thought was really underserved. And can we create it in a way that where it becomes a buy-right project where, and one of the things I wanted to point out is the units themselves are permanent, but their locations can change. Yeah. So if you're constantly cycling through at three to six month stays for each of the residents, you can help a lot of people very quickly. And mm-hmm. one of the things that happened about the taking on a life of its own is once we got the city involved and once we kept working with their codes and trying to find what would be possible is we really realized that this project, I mean, we should we could put one in every service provider area. That would be ideal. And so we started with a client in mind, but it became such a broader solution. Also, it would work great for anywhere that's been up, been up uh, where there's been a lot of upheaval with fires or floods or earthquakes, because we can stage in and stage out of any site 5,000 square feet and up in just a matter of weeks. And one of the things that one of the models we were looking at is would, be, would actually be to occupy sites that are already slated for permanent supportive housing while they're sitting vacant. So we can constantly be doing something while nothing's happening. And then also designing for NIMBYism in mind. So while you can't stop us, technically, we hope that you like it because the thing is, we also wanted to challenge the typology of the homeless shelter. Because I know what you think when you think of a homeless shelter. I I can see it. It's something hideous. There's long lines. You would never want it in your neighborhood. And I get that, but this wasn't what we were proposing. We were proposing something that looks like an apartment building that anybody would be happy to live in. And so all while being temporary, so we can all kind of share the burden, so to speak, because it's time. We need to look at the new numbers that just came out. Yeah, I reread that this morning. Um, yeah. 
you know, one thing that was odd was like looking at how, you know, we were going through these processes and like we're working at different scales. Like you said, the first two weeks um, we were doing, we basically did, you know, our boot camp, but also they had to design a shop. And these kids had never built anything before for the most part. And they had to build a shopping cart scale mobile unit that could expand and that people had to be able to sleep off the ground. So it was like these little portable shelters they could roll around. And what they came back with at the end of those first two weeks were just, it was just stunning. Like, I mean, it's all documented in the book. People kind of look through the book and they look at the first few pages. Oh, you're building just these small things. Like, no, the end, the real projects are there. The book is Give Me Shelter. Yeah, Give Me Shelter. <laughs> and, but, you know, and so that went incredibly well. The students just made these amazing things. They would expand the recording style, you know, um, nesting boxes, just, you know, all this stuff. And the second project, uh, we brought so down. was that was that first project meant to like lead into? The it was really projects? making them think about how people had to survive on the streets, uh-huh. and so it was something like. Do you consider those to be realistic solutions or more kind of thought experiments? It's it was thought experiments. It was also trying to build their skill on like how to build things, but it was uh-huh. also like really think about like how much stuff do you have? What can you know? What can you push? Like, there's a reason people use shopping carts. They are mm-hmm. mobile. They don't break down much, and it's something like that is kind of the basis for a lot of. You know, the architect, well, not the architecture, but just the transport. And um, I think it was also to teach them and b- build their sense of compassion yeah. for what would end up being their clients. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that Mary Martin noticed under that underpass mm-hmm. was that people experiencing homelessness are builders. They are makers. And imagine mm-hmm. taking your life apart, deconstructing it, reconstructing it multiple times a day for the indefinite future. How do you do that? What does it look like? What would you do? So you'll see really inventive solutions. So one of the ideas of that first assignment was to get them familiar with building, was to build compassion, but was also to learn the vernacular of these kind of informal building solutions that you see permeate all over Los Angeles and analyze them, learn from them, and then offer insight into how to streamline them, make them, you know, offer more security and yeah, integrity and yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think it just, you know, something that you would ask about what excites about teaching is that like the students were getting excited and it wasn't just them. It was the other students in the school getting excited because like generally I, I was joking before I'm a ghost in the machine. I stay in the shop, but like to actually see larger built things like out in the courtyard of the school. We uh, built everything in the courtyard because yeah. that was another thing is yeah. you, you can't look away anymore about this conversation. I th- that we could have done it somewhere that was more, you know, palatable more tasteful, less in your backyard, so to speak. But that was another kind of intentional choice to build it in front of everyone. It makes a lot of sense. The whole time. And it, it became an issue as far as, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I really, I'm just like, I still love this fight that, um, um, the next project we did and just the fact that the students cranked out stuff in two weeks, it was just stunning. So we brought down a, a guy from uh, Oakland named Gregory Klein and Gregory's kind of art. He's been in Oakland forever and his kind of art is he goes out and finds detritus, you know, gathers trash and he builds these little houses of it and he just puts them out. And the city of Oakland doesn't seem to mind. Like it's not like there are a few people do it here and there's kind of an in your face to L.A. And they end up getting crushed for the most part. But um, Greg has a very good relationship with the city of Oakland, as far as we know. And he came down and worked with us. He, so he houses people in his yeah. in his tiny homes mm-hmm. for years. So do these? Do, does the end product still look like trash? No, no, they're, no, they're, no, they're, they're wonderful. They look yeah. like that. The cover yeah. of the Give Me Shelter book, and, uh, for and, instance. And so, and that was one. So the students went out for a weekend and gathered trash throughout LA, and we filled the entire courtyard of 
you know, the USC School of Architecture with trash. And it was glorious. It was amazing. <laughs> and so what was exciting was to see the activation of all the other students because other students from other studios would come in and help. Mm. And so there were three teams. They had to build these three shelters. And in they, a week. In a week. So they gathered the stuff all weekend. And by Friday, the Friday was their review. And they were out there, you know, we have this amazing time lapse. I put a camera up in the window and just like watching them assemble these things. But having, you know, we would sit on the bench and watching them work. And like, as I said, it was like the, you know, the Tom Sawyer effect is just like people would come in and just like, oh, how can I help? What's fun to work on? And they were having all these people come in and help and everybody would stop and look. And it's very kind of activating the community. But then I would have like, you know, other faculty members like infuriated that this was happening. Like, this is not critical work. And he's pointing at me going, this guy is out there building with trash in our courtyard. And I'm like, yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And they're actually doing something. And it's just, it was considered not critical work. And it doesn't get much more critical than it it wasn't considered critical architecture. And so that, and so, and that's why I say I have a weird relationship with architecture because it's just like, I'm, I guess I'm not critical in that way. It's a critical project overall, but it's not a critical study of architecture. But these students Mm -hmm. built full scale structures that ended up being occupied Mm -hmm. in a week. And that's what I was talking about with, with that's, I think that's one of my favorite teaching Mm -hmm. moments was they are awake. Mm -hmm. They actually built something. I mean, so many people go to architecture school and even after never build anything and you could actually do something in a week Mm -hmm. for no money, just putting in your, putting in some energy. Well, I mean, this is this is an incredible learning opportunity, but I, I imagine also there's something there's like this naivete and um, energy from students that is probably different than if you collected a bunch of practicing architects who wanted to to approach something like this. Like, what is it like working with students that don't have any experience working, you know, in architecture or? It has to be done the same as an office. And the the two big studios I've done where we really put out a lot of work, like you really do have to run it like an office. You can't fire anybody, but you really have to figure out who can do what. And it really becomes segmented by like, this guy's doing this, this guy's doing this, this is the team leader on this. And these people are going to go out for coffee. And, but they're all involved in the project. But at a certain point, there are students that are heavily engaged, really excited about the whole thing. And there are some that are just there because they happen to get in that studio. And they're all part of it. But it's just a matter of like, you really do have to arrange it like an office and run it like an office or it's not going to work. But I would say the other aspect of that was, I think that the Mm -hmm. the boot camp that we put them through was extremely critical because it wasn't an abstract Mm -hmm. idea. You know, I didn't come in, maybe Scott presents me as the face of this issue or something, but I didn't come in and Scott didn't come in. And none of these students are coming in as experts in homelessness. Only people that can do that are a better face of this issue. Well, it's fine. But (laughs) the thing is, is that we don't know anything. And I think one of the things that architects have been consistently guilty of just in how how work is approached is this idea that we know better. We know better. We know what you what you want and what you need. Let's we'll handle it. And that, I think, is the problem. And so I just had this feeling that from the very first moment, they need to be interfacing with the client not talking down. They don't know you like, we don't know anything about what's on your mind. Let's go find out. Mm-hmm. Let's find out, you know, even I think one of the things that the students took away right away that permeated all the other designs that they did from 
day one was hearing about just what a difference it makes to have be elevated a few inches even off of the ground so that rats and bugs don't crawl on you. That was like just having a, a tiny threshold. That was a huge eye-opener for them. Having a key, a door you can lock, something where someone won't put a knife through your tent. These are the stories and, and, and feedback they needed to hear. So I think, you know, this problem, you can look away, but that would be a disservice to the design solutions that are possible when you don't, when you actually extend your hand and find out how you can really help. And also learn that in the end, because shelter should be a human right, we're all kind of after the same basic stuff. And it's not a design for you and a design for them. It's a design for all of us. So I'm sure through this process, you have have come across many lessons in how to how to solve this problem for the sector of our society that is so hard to relate to. In this process, did you engage uh, the work of of homeless people to to help out at all with with the uh, construction or or ideas? Oh yeah, uh, I mean we so we've had we had a, several different guest speakers and guest contributors. So uh, Betty Chin is a really remarkable woman. She won the, or was not won, but she was bestowed, award, uh, honored. Yeah, she awarded, she, yeah. she uh, was awarded the Presidential uh, Medal of Honor. Presidential, freedom, or, freedom or Honor. It's the second highest award you can win as a citizen in this country. Mm-hmm. And she's a remarkable woman. She was homeless for most of her childhood in China. And she has this amazing story of walking across China as a child alone, barefoot. I mean, her story is the most harrowing, amazing. It is a traumatizing story. It, it is. is but she's but she is the most joyful, hardworking woman I have ever met in my life. And she... They now call her the Mother Teresa of Humboldt County. And she has created all of these shelters, housed all of these people, and she never stops. She starts every day at the crack of dawn, earlier, it's dark, always, goes all day, all night. I've never seen, she doesn't sit, she doesn't need any, she doesn't need a drink of water. She's fine. She's ready to go. And she's my hero. And she came down and she worked with the class and she got to tell them what it is like to be out there. And then we also had um, Ted Hayes, who is the the creator of Dome Village, come to the class and do a workshop with students and learn firsthand from the the first person who really successfully, I mean, that's the longest lasting homeless encampment of sorts. I mean, that was emergency stabilization housing that really upended all sorts of ideas about the vernacular of what that could look like. I mean, Dome Village was was wild. I mean, they would feed the community. It wasn't the community offering them services and them charity. They would come in. They had one of the one of the domes was a, a like a, a hub for computers. So they had internet. You would come take computer classes. This is the mid to late eighties and early nineties. I mean, this was a revolutionary place. So it was amazing. So one of the things when we first started. Designing Homes Pro, he came out and we talked about layout and, you know, how many, what's the sweet spot for how large of the community should be aside from the buy right issues. And, and it was really fascinating. And it was fascinating to hear him talk 
because for him, Dome Village is a failure because Dome Village never moved. His goal, which is exactly what Homes for Hope tries to do now, is the, basically his his takeaway from all of this is the most dangerous thing that emergency stabilization housing can become is permanent. So having the temporary solution become the permanent one. So Dome Village stayed in place for more than a decade, and that wasn't what he wanted. That wasn't the intention. And so even with the criticism that we've gotten for this project, is people are are they look at it and they look at the shared bathrooms and they look at the lack of, you know, you don't have your own kitchen, everything. These there's these shared spaces and they criticize it and and that's right. It's not your forever home. We don't want it to be. This is just a place to stop the free fall where you get your caseworker, where you get your social services, where you get you know you stabilize. So then you get placed into your forever home. This is not it it would be a failure for these kinds of places to end up being your forever home. That's not our goal. So it's a typology that most people can't relate to. Sure. And, and I mean, and that is my fear that this becomes the new normal, that you, you have this kind of like, you know, Blade Runner style, like dystopian, like you get your cubicle and you're there. Well, it's and like the trailers for the schools that came in just temporarily. Sure. And the, the they're still. The thing is, is just nuts. Um, right. And so, uh, I mean, the thing is, one of our earliest comments that I took badly was one of your one of your readers. Mm-hmm. And uh, y'all gave us some early press, like during the studio. And it was somebody yeah. going like, this is a policy problem. I'm like, it's not a policy problem. Policy doesn't work. And this is kind of going back to the, what I was saying about the architectural education. We are attuned to see gaps in the system. We're attuned to we have special skills that have come out of our education that we can we can solve this problem. It's an architectural problem now. And that's the thing is like, you know, policy, you know, I was just reading recently, just the head of law said was like, it's not a policy problem. Like in an article I read the other day, it's just like, it's not a policy problem. It's now, it really is just a space problem. We do not have space for these people. And LA is just such a weird phenomenon is that, you know, people are knocked off the lowest housing ladder and it's not like they're not mentally ill. They have jobs, but, you know, somebody may have been in a rent stabilized house for 25 years and some, and, you know, somebody comes in, buys the apartment, flushes everyone out and they have nowhere to go. There's not a safety net. And that's when people wind up on the streets. Well, regardless, LA is just getting so expensive. So mm-hmm. even even if you can afford to pay for the, for the housing, you have to compete for it mm-hmm. because there's such a shortage. So was it Section Eight housing? Like the only available Section Eight housing was in Palmdale. So that I mean that that's a great thing that you mentioned. I mean, one of the things that we became aware of through this process is how many people you might see on the streets that actually have sex, Section Eight vouchers in their pockets. And nowhere to use them. Mm. So people can have them for six months, a year, but no one's going to take them anywhere around here. So we're not actually housing people. We just kind of pretend that we are. Say that we're giving them the opportunity right. when the opportunity doesn't actually it doesn't exist. exist. No. So let's talk about the book. Initially, when I first uh, when I first held this book, I was drawn to the cover and the way that it was constructed. Did you guys have a, a role in this? Like, can you talk about? Uh, it, it has a very thick yep. cover with an interesting use of materials and binding. How did you approach this this book project, and and why did you decide to kind of archive all of this material in a book? I think we had to. I mean, I mean, <laughs> not that we were contractually obligated to. It's like I think we just had to do it uh, because I mean, this is something where the amount of I mean, we're still kind of stunned by the amount of work that was done in fifteen weeks. Like I'm still to this day like so I this cannot. this entire book is fifteen, 15 weeks. weeks. That's, right. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. 
And so, I mean, just the fact that it was done, we documented everything, heavily documented everything. We always plan on having a publication because like, we can't do this without fully documenting it because we wanted to see what can be done. And I think we always had faith that something, I think it was after the first, we knew we were going to build something. It was never a question about that, but it was after that first project that said kind of stunned me how much they got done in the first two weeks. It was like something really amazing is going to come out of this. It's going to be phenomenal. And like, but we had already gone, you know, taken great pains to make sure that there was a photographer, that there was, that we were documenting everything. And, and then, um, I don't know, I, th- I think the cover is pretty striking. I think the whole thing of like constructing out of chipboard, you know, this heavy, you know, studio chipboard that it will stain, it will get beat up. It will, you know. It's, well, I think it was important that the, the book wasn't, you know, some precious coffee table book mm-hmm. that it, it wasn't it wasn't fancy it's factual and it kind of has a level of grit that's very much related to the topic and what we're doing yeah i think it i think the the look and feel definitely immediately conveys the kind of material and kind of tectonic approach mm-hmm. that that you've taken in this project did you you guys uh, edited it mm-hmm. is that yes i actually designed it as well oh Great job. Thanks. And it's it's already available? Oh, yeah. You can get it at most major bookstores or on Amazon. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a pretty incredible project and a very admirable goal to create solutions for this homelessness problem. Thank you so much for, for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's still a very viable project. It's still something that could actually work. Definitely. I mean, what what are the hurdles in getting this actually forward to make a real difference in the homelessness problem in LA? We, we were ready to move forward. We were actually ready to move forward. We had talked to manufacturers. We had gone through, it was going to be state certified. It was all these things that um, I think we hit a political level that we just didn't understand. And I think that it's something that's still a viable situation. I still have some problems with things that have been derivative of this and just not really hit the mark that this thing really had traction. It really could have gone forward. And we just, I think we just hit a political hurdle and um, with, with several different entities, but um, it's, I think I get a call. I still get a call for this thing every month. Yeah. From, I mean, and, and funding. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we were hoping to do the first pop-up community as a, mm-hmm. as a kind of test case, a prototype. And my hope is that someone just ends up being brave enough to try it once, because I think, once you break through that first resistance, people see, oh, it works. Oh, it's nice. Nicer than I thought. Oh, then then maybe that would give it more life. But to me, as I've said that this issue, I, I feel frustrated. I've I've backed off a little bit about, about it because I I just I I want to shelter people. And it's frustrating that we haven't completely managed to do it yet. And but my hope is that at least with this book, it can be a tool. Mm-hmm. that hopefully gets someone else closer to doing that. Yeah. Well, we, we, at one point we thought it was a done deal. We thought we were going forward and then, uh, and then El Pueblo gets built and our project would have, our initial pilot project would have cost less than putting trailers at Elvera street. That's right. Cause their deck cost $700,000. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think they went in that direction? Cause Gensler did it. Mm. Well, I also think, you know, mm-hmm. the city council who's, representing each mm-hmm. district mm-hmm. they have more power than i think maybe people are aware of mm-hmm. and so that council member was also more comfortable with the idea of trailers yeah so but, i always say if people don't like what's happening yeah. you should 
I think, and I think it's a very for, visible, for other people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very visible thing. Like we're doing something, but it was something where they took some GE portable office trailers and just made them bunk houses. And I don't feel that I, I know that. And, and Gensler is trying, but I really think there are other architectural solutions. And I think that just like it may not be the most. You know, those were prefabricated, but we know what we were doing is going to be state certified. Once it rolled off the assembly line, it was ready to put down. Like when it left the factory, it was pre-certified. It could go straight to the site. There is no building permit. It just goes straight in. So going forward, are you going to continue pushing to see this realized or do you have? I, I think both of us are just kind of like we fought for it for a year and a half. And we're kind of just like if something happens, it happens. And if there really is interest. Yeah. Your work is done and you're waiting. You, you yeah, want, I mean, you well, want we, someone we to really fought tooth and yeah. nail for this thing. I would yeah. like Amazon to sponsor the first pop-up <laughs> community of homes for hope. Mm -hmm. It would be great publicity and think about how many people would be helped for such a small yeah. investment. And I just read earlier today that Jeff Bezos has a publicly uh, accessible email address. So wouldn't be worth, or uh, wouldn't be a Jeff at Amazon.com. Oh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good guess. I, I've been wanting to, to find him. So. Apparently he responds to emails. Okay. Wow. Well, maybe I could get that from you. <laughs> we're done here. Jeff I'm coming for you, Jeff. Yeah. With a smile. But, uh, yeah. I think, I think if it happens, but I do get calls once a month, uh, hope of the Valley will refer them over and just say like, and then I have to go through the entire project. Like what happened? What failed? What did, you know, why didn't it move forward? I'm like, in the end, that's like, I just don't know. In the end, we need funding and we need land. Not a lot of land, mm -hmm. just some. And mm -hmm. someone brave enough to see it through. Yeah. And the economy of scale, this thing will get cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. And, uh, Who funded the Olivera Street not project? Sure. I think it was like $2.7 million. For the whole. That was Prop HHH funds, right? I know Prop HHH cannot be used except for permanent support. So where did that funding come from? Was it Measure know. H? I don't know. Mm. Good question. That's how informed we are these days. Me <laughs> Me Measure H is really more about support. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really direct housing. And then Triple H, it's just bizarre that it's only for permanent support. It cannot touch stuff like this. Mm. And so it's a, I mean, it's a longer than a podcast conversation at that point. Do you see yourselves continuing to look at other potential solutions? I don't know. I think this was just the perfect time to do it. And I uh -huh. think it was a very prescient idea that our David and Mary Martin had that they, I wouldn't have done this. You know, I had spent years like looking at containerized housing and people shouldn't live in containers. Yeah. They really shouldn't. That's. And uh, I also think this, this project just has a life. I mean, obviously I would love it to house the community that needs it in Los Angeles specifically. But I mean, last year with the fires, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you did around, right around Thanksgiving, all the fires in Northern California and the tent city of displaced residents outside in the parking lot of what a Walmart yeah. in the cold when we, you know, FEMA could even say have a couple hundred of these units just ready to go whenever there is an emergency for, you know, needing to house people rapidly. Yeah. And it just would add such a level of humanity to this whole process because it inevitably these kinds of big crises are going to come up, whether they're man-made through, you know, economic disparity or natural disasters and all of that. Yeah. I know that Gensler is trying to do something similar to this. Um, and I've actually had former students that were working there going like, they told me, you're our precedent. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a project they're doing in San Jose trying because that's another horrible housing situation. But each of those units cost at least 90 grand. These are like 25 to 27. And then a lot, some of the housing they're doing, you know, Prefab refabricated containers are like 
they're trying to do these low cost units and they're still costing $500,000 a unit. So it's just, wow. every time I see something, I kind of just bite my tongue, but it's just like, you know, we did this and we're very proud of it. And we really think it still has a future, but it's just something that, you know, if it comes up again, we'll be happy to dive back into it, but it just, we kind of just let it go. Well, it's out there now in this book. Somebody right. needs to uh, Jeff. make it, make it <laughs> Jeff. Dear, dear, dear Jeff. We, we know you listen to this podcast, Jeff. <laughs> Now that he's divorced, he's got nothing to do but listen to architecture podcasts. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming, guys. Thank Thank you. you. And that concludes our show for this week. This issue of homelessness is an important one for us at Arconnect. We're currently planning on focusing on this issue in upcoming editorial and events. If you've been involved in any initiatives in this area or would like to get involved in any way, please reach out to us at connect at arconnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a comment or rating us on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.